Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio this week are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, retail banking correspondent, and also Giles Andrews, the head of Zopa, the peer-to-peer lender. Down the line from Washington, we have Sam Fleming, our US economics editor. Today, we'll be looking at the latest efforts by financial chiefs to ward off the threats of shadow banking. Secondly, we'll take a look at Deutsche Bank as it examines the risks around Brexit. And finally, a look at Zopa as it teams up with Metro Bank. First of all, though, to that story that Sam Fleming has been writing about, how 15 financial chief executives and chairmen have written an open letter under the auspices of the World Economic Forum to warn policymakers about the risks of regulatory drift and policymaker drift that aids the shadow banking sector and endangers the world. Is that a fair summary, Sam? It's a summary, yes. I think the letter is intended to be an endorsement of macroprudential regulation. So effectively, the use of regulatory tools to rein in booms and busts and uh, look at the resilience of the financial sector rather than the individual firm's resilience. And this is an open statement orchestrated by the World Economic Forum and uh, endorsed by people including Andrew Jane, Deutsche Bank, Larry Fink from BlackRock and Douglas from HSBC, among others. As you say, one of the concerns they're raising in this, and this is where you could argue there is an element of self-interest in this statement, is a warning that macroprudential regulation, if it's too narrowly defined, could end up forcing activity out of the traditional regulatory sphere into the shadow banking sphere, where it could flourish less monitored and less supervised. And what will come of it? I mean, it's, it's not a letter to anyone in specific terms. It's, it's an open communication. Is anyone listening? Well, we'll see. I mean, in a sense, a lot of regulators will look at this and say, well, thank you, banks and insurers, for endorsing macroprudential regulation. That is indeed what we're doing. So uh, <laughs> this is a, a case of financial sector saying, yes, we believe in what you're doing, regulators, when the regulators are actually fully immersed and knee-deep in the world of macroprudential regulation and have in some jurisdictions been for decades in Asia in particular. Macroprudential regulation has been uh, fairly central to their efforts to uh, prevent things like housing booms for many years. So I think it'll be seen by the financial sector as an example of the sector this time trying to take a lead instead of sitting around and watching dangerous asset bubbles as they did before 2007-8. This time they're out there arguing the case for tough action where necessary. I think more cynical observers will first of all seize on the fact that these individual firms are, as we said earlier, focusing their concern on the shadow banking sector rather than themselves. And um, we'll have to see indeed whether regulators really pay much attention to the industry. Indeed we will. Sam, thank you very much for that. Next topic, Deutsche Bank. Martin, you broke the story this morning that they've put in place an internal committee to look at the risks around Britain's exit from the EU. Is this just game playing, lobbying, or do you think they're genuinely concerned about Brexit? 
I think it's a mixture of both. I think they are genuinely concerned and they are going to do some genuine work in assessing the implications of the various scenarios because there are many scenarios obviously the UK could stay in the EU but even if the UK does vote in the referendum to leave the EU there are a huge range of possibilities from a complete break with the EU to many kinds of negotiated settlement where we're allowed various shades of access to the single market for instance and that will come down to a lengthy political negotiation between the UK and the major European powers. So, you know, they will look at all those scenarios and decide what actions they would need to take. I think, though, there is a political message here, which is that most of the big banks operating in the city of London, certainly the investment banks, are huge fans of the UK staying in the EU. They see great advantages for themselves and for the UK generally of them being able to passport from their UK subsidiaries into the rest of the EU market, the other 27 countries, and be able to sell freely financial services to customers across the block without any kind of impediments. And also the benefits of freedom of movement. You can't underestimate these kinds of advantages. So I think that Germany is very keen for the UK to remain in there. So I think Deutsche Bank is being a good corporate citizen by letting it be known that they're doing this in order to try and make it clear in the debate that leaving the EU will not be a cost-free decision for the UK to make, and it would really hit the city of London. One interesting fact that you pointed out in your story, they are the only bank that's doing this, despite the fact that, as you say, it would hit the city as a whole, particularly in the investment banking community. No other bank has set up this kind of committee. Yeah, but i just refine that slightly. They're the only bank who say they are doing this. So you know, it wouldn't surprise me if other banks weren't doing a bit of work on this behind the scenes. I think they're certainly the furthest along in setting up a formal group with senior executives from their risk and from their research and from their UK management arms to do a formal piece of work and to report the results back up to the board. Other bankers I've spoken to who would be involved if their banks were looking at this have said to me, well, what contingency planning can I do? Because there are such a range of possibilities. How can they possibly plan for a contingency where they just have no idea what the outcome is going to be? How can you possibly start drawing up plans for that? could just bring Laura in on this because obviously one of the main single market advantages that you referred to is on the investment banking side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that actually Deutsche Bank is the one which appears to be furthest along on this road because Deutsche Bank is a large Eurozone bank, so they have easier options. They already have substantial operations in their home market, Germany. I think it's actually going to be a bigger issue for the large US investment banks who are here in London because some of those don't really have major hubs elsewhere in the Eurozone. So it's quite easy for Deutsche Bank to access the single European market from their home country, Germany. It is a lot harder for these large US banks. And certainly having talked to them, they are definitely thinking very hard hard about things. In terms of contingency planning, Martin is right, it is very hard to work out how you would deal with different things, but you are able to do something to cut the risk and how you do that is if there's any activities which you currently have in the UK, which you could just as easily do elsewhere, it probably makes sense to do it elsewhere because you don't have the risk on that. But in terms of actually trying to align things which are difficult to move from the UK to elsewhere in the EU, I think people aren't really taking those steps yet because people do think that there will be a sensible solution, that it isn't going to be that the UK exits the EU and that's it, everything's off. I mean, there will be a phase-in situation and most likely they will come to some kind of agreement around the common market access. Yes. 
Martin, final word? One practical area where most banks expect the activity would probably have to move is all around the trading of euro foreign exchange, euro-based securities, trading of euro debt, um, both sovereign and corporate debt. It's quite likely that that would have to move onshore within the EU, at least if not within the eurozone. And there's already been a challenge from Brussels on having some of the euro-based clearers based here in the UK, which the UK government successfully saw off that challenge on the basis that the UK was a member of the single market and therefore it was fine for them to be here. But if the UK was no longer a member of the single market, was outside the EU, it'd be a much tougher case to say it's fine for those euro clearers to be doing all this euro-based business based in the city of London. Very good. Let's move on to our third topic. Zopa has teamed up with Metrobank. So Emma, you wrote the story about this interesting partnership. Tell us a little bit about it. This is the first British bank to form a tie-up with a peer-to-peer lender whereby they actually lend through the platform to borrowers on the other side. So it's really the collaboration between two so-called challengers taking on a market which is currently dominated by the big four British banks. So for Metro, which has a deposit base of about £3 this is a way for them to really boost their distribution and lending capacity, which currently sits at about £1.8 They've had problems trying to lend money, basically, haven't they? They didn't have the distribution capabilities or possibly the product mix to be able to lend as much as they were taking in in deposits. This is certainly another way for Metro to expand its distribution base, which is at the moment also focused on growing branches. So it has a very high cost infrastructure and is currently loss making. So it's important for them to grow their asset base in this regard. And on the other side, for Zopa, this is obviously a way for them to boost the amount of lending originated through their platform. Well, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Giles Andrews, who's the head of Zopa, which is, I think I'm right in saying, the UK's biggest peer-to-peer lender. The world's first peer-to-peer lender as well. Yes. Tell us from your point of view a little bit more about the rationale. Well, we were delighted to create a partnership with a member of the establishment, if you like, with a member of the banking establishment. So as far as we're concerned, to partner with the financial services system suggests that we've grown up a little bit, if you like. And I hope also gives great comfort to our retail lender base that people in dark suits have crawled all over our business in a way that our retail lenders don't necessarily have the ability to do so. And why, as a borrower, would I not just go to Metrobank and borrow the money there rather than put another intermediary in the chain? Well, I think Metro have identified that we're a more efficient channel for a particular borrowing product. So for unsecured personal loans, it's more efficient for them to originate them through us. And obviously, they've done extensive due diligence on our credit and our operations and are comfortable that they're well up to scratch, if you like, from a Metro standpoint. And will there be other banks? I think there will be. I wouldn't want to predict which, but um, certainly we've had a lot of interest from banks. And, you know, you you know the sector well. You know which banks are perhaps more deposit-rich and and which aren't. And they'd be likely candidates to be more interested in this kind of proposition than others. Now, there are critics of this kind of partnership because we've seen other peer-to-peer lenders team up, particularly in the US, with banks. And it's starting to happen here. The criticism being that this kind of undermines the kind of chippy nature of the non-establishment values, if you like, of peer-to-peer, and also just, I suppose, crowds out potential finance from other parties. I think there are a couple of different answers to that. So firstly, I think the situation is quite different in the sense that the American peer-to-peer businesses actually never really were peer-to-peer or not beyond their very, very first iteration. Um, So very early on in their lives, they turned to institutions and have become institutionally dominated ever since, Uh, whereas the UK platforms, and and Zopa in particular, have have been very, very retail-focused. So we've built a business with a substantial retail lender base. We've got 65,000 active retail lenders. 
And if you look at the composition of the loan book, it's the vast majority is, is retail-owned assets. And that's something we want to continue with. However, the other side of the, the coin is that it's kind of challenging to grow our retail base quickly. So we've tended to grow our retail base very organically through recommendation and word of mouth and and through PR, but not through extensive advertising. And in fact, it's quite challenging to think how you could create an advert that would recruit retail lenders. So while we have various levers to turn, if you like, we have marketing channels that work on the borrower side, we have less so on the lender side. So there's sometimes a lag in our ability to grow our dispersals, grow the, the number of borrowers coming to our site faster then we can grow the lender base. So we see the institutions as a really helpful buffer, if you like, to plug that gap. So it's in no way crowding out the retail lender. So we take quite great steps to make sure that doesn't happen. The other important distinction, certainly with regards to Zopa compared to the US platforms, is that we don't allow our institutional lenders to choose the loans. And I think, in fact, you're beginning to see the US platforms realise that it's not a very clever idea either for them to allow the institutions to choose the loans. Because you have seen situations where institutions have claimed to be adding value in their loan selection. And if that were true, I'm not convinced it is true, by the way, but were it to be true, were you to believe it to be true, then that would imply that the base that's left behind for the retail lenders is necessarily worse. So we take a view that all lenders have an equal opportunity, if you like, on the platform, and we allocate loans randomly to the different types so that no one type can be disadvantaged or advantaged compared to the other. Well, it does feel whatever happens next, it's, it's the start of a new phase, I suspect. Of, it's of very PSP. exciting. Yeah. Very exciting indeed. Thank you so much, Charles Andrews from the Zopa Peer-to-Peer Lender. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura, Emma, Sam Fleming in Washington, and our guest Charles Andrews from Zopa. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.